Hello, Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And, uh, you know, today we're taking it back to the 90s again to a game that I don't think is very famous among UConn fans, but it's certainly a game that probably... It probably should be. Uh, so I have Ken Davis here, uh, the uh, f- former Hartford current uh, UConn men's basketball beat writer, been covering the team forever, probably knows more about the team than just about anybody. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the game versus Duke in the 1994-95 season, uh, which was a part of the Great Eight uh, tournament in uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills in uh, the Detroit area. So uh, Ken, thanks so much for coming back on. Uh, really appreciate your take the time. Good to be back. Oh, nice. Well, yeah. So, you know, I, I felt like this would be a good uh, a good game to talk about because this 1995 team was awesome. And I, I feel like in the grand scheme of things, they might be the most underrated UConn team ever. So I guess just to kind of start off, you know, um, you know, this is a team obviously you covered closely. What was what was this team like, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, the, their character and their place in, you know, UConn history? Obviously, they, you know, they didn't, you know, win a national title or anything, but had loads of talent on that team. So, you know, what can you tell us a little bit about uh, where the UConn program was in 1995? Well, this team had uh, a good balance of experience and youth and also the ability to uh, to press defensively, and that was always one of my favorite things about Jim Calhoun teams when they used the 2-2-1 press but, uh, and, and, and forced, you know, forced the action, but they also were great in transition, and that's why... They, they scored so many points. I mean, this game, it, you, you go back and look at it, and I mean, they scored 90 points against Duke, and that, that's obviously a great feat. And It just didn't even really feel like they they were uh, doing it with any difficulty. That You know, they got so many points in transition. They had, they, they um, the announcers talked about, that if Dick Vitale was on there, Leslie Visser was the sideline reporter, and they talked about, how many uh, easy layups they were getting? UConn shot sixty percent in the first half of that game, but 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 as you're asking about the overall thing is, I think you know they had questions coming in because they were they had, were replacing Danielle Marshall, who was, was such a dynamic player and a great scorer, and, and, and left early for the NBA. But they were they were replacing Danielle with Ray Allen, and there were still there were questions. About this was Ray's sophomore year, and they were they were asking uh, before the season. People were saying, you know, could could Ray follow Danielle? Well, he certainly did, and maybe maybe even more. Um, and and Ray was even questioned about his. I mean, as hard as it is to believe now, he was such a prolific three point shooter in the NBA. But people were questioning his jump shot. But he had twenty six points in this game, and. Um, was was really the star, and they were UConn was more experienced than Duke in that game. I mean, Cherokee Parks was was the star. Uh, they were replacing Grant Hill, and uh, you know they I think had been to what seven of nine Final Fours or something like that, and they, they were on that roll. And of course, it was only the uh, third meeting uh, in the in the Calhoun era between. Uh, the two teams and the, the other two, of course, was the were the infamous NCAA losses. Uh, the one in the Meadowlands in in '90 that ended the dream season on Christian Leitner's shot, and the the one the next year when Rod Sellers bounced Christian Leitner's head on the floor with his elbow, and and um, those were obviously fixated in the minds of UConn fans. And then this was the first time that UConn had had beaten Duke in, in four meetings over history. So, um, in, in many ways, you know, it, it, it kept that role, that rivalry rolling on to the, what it would later be. I think then you kind of ended up winning four in a row against Duke, including national championship game. And then in, in, uh, 99 and then the, the final four, the next time they met in the final four. So, um, it has that. It just kind of has that weird place in history, and because it was the second game of that season, uh, I don't think a lot of people remember it as much as the NCAA tournament games. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think that's what one of the reasons I wanted to start here, because usually when I feel like people talk about this team, they usually talk about that Elite Eight loss to UCLA, which which is honestly like one of the few examples of a, a loss that I can actually think that it might be worth doing an episode on because that was just such a, a crazy game. But this, uh, you know, this game in this place in the season was so fascinating because it's it's like you said, UConn had Danielle Marshall, who, you know, at the time was it was really the program's first like super duper star, like. You know the the you know, somebody who like everybody was like you know oh, yeah that dude is like one of the best players in the country full stop and you know replacing him you know it's hard to replace a guy like that you know under any circumstances and yet you look at the starting lineup and you've got yourself Kevin Ollie who's a senior so that's actually probably worth a whole discussion of itself kind of you have you know Kevin Ollie the player you know kind of at the peak of his powers you know you got Ray Allen you got Duran Sheffer you got Travis Knight and um yeah, and shoot, who's the fifth one? <laughs> Donnie Marshall. Donnie Marshall, of course. So all five of those guys are awesome. Like you got like that's a really strong lineup. You you know Ray Allen, of course, kind of makes the leap to become a superstar this season. But all of those other guys are you know super you know really really strong players. And uh, this was an opportunity for them. You know really you know by beating Duke, like that really sets them on a like on a stage to be like yeah this this is one of the best teams in the country and. You know, I mean, just Duke themselves, like, you know, they hadn't beaten them yet. So that was like a big monkey off their back. And then, you know, you kind of saw the rest of the way they really went for it. Um, do you, 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 of course, covered this game. Do you recall sort of how like this game sort of, you know, kind of set the stage for what was it they were able to accomplish in the the weeks and months to come? Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think they were ranked uh, 16th and UConn, Duke was uh, number six, I believe. going in. Chris. You're in the era there of, of Ray Allen and UConn being good and also UMass being good with Marcus Camby. And, of course, they weren't playing at that time, but, but Marcus and Ray, you know, kind of became interlocked in, in, you know, who was the player of the year and all that the next season. And it, it definitely uh, had that place in history where – it was a great time for New England basketball, but but UMass had moved up in the rankings higher. But UConn ended up winning their first 15 games of this season and kept moving up in the rankings, and then things f- fell in place, and they became the number one team for the first time. In, I mean, you think about all the great things that had happened, but this was the first time they were number one in the polls during the regular season, and they did that going into a Georgetown game after a very humiliating loss at Kansas, and we can get into that later if you want to, but, you know, they, a couple of weeks after losing to Kansas in Kansas City, they come back and, and uh, I think Kansas and UMass lost over a, a weekend series where, where UConn beats, I think, beat Syracuse, and then they go down to Georgetown and they win that game, and then they ended up coming, Villanova was kind of the, was Kerry Kittles was kind of the team that they they couldn't get over. They lost to Villanova twice that season, and so then they they dropped back out of the number one position. But you know it it uh, it wasn't the going it wasn't the kind of situation where going into the season you expected them to be a number one team. But it was a gradual move up with fifteen wins, and when they got there, it was an enormous deal. I, I I'll never forget. Uh, going down for that Georgetown game, and, and we all, all of us in the horde, as they used to call us, the, the media crew, we had to hustle, get down there, and go to their practice at George Washington. They they had the, the, the court at George Washington to, to practice the day before the Georgetown game, and, and the poll came out that day, and they were number one, and they got media attention from not only from the Connecticut writers, but also writers in Washington and Baltimore, show up at practice and I remember kids at George Washington were seeing these guys come in from from UConn all these big basketball players and everybody was just kind of in shock on on the uh, campus and it was that was a day I'll, I'll never get probably remember that day more than some of the games even the one you're we're, we're talking about but going back and, and looking at the game you're right I mean that nucleus of that great recruiting class plus Ray, and, uh, you know, you don't, you, Travis didn't get enough really attention in this game, but, but, but Kevin 
Ollie he played extremely well. Had a career high, I think, twenty four points, and and made uh, six free free throws down the stretch uh, after some turnovers by UConn that that kind of finally sealed the deal. Even though UConn had had led most of the game, they had to they had to pull it out in the end in, in many ways because Mike Shevsky is a master at using the clock and and uh, got the got the Blue Devils back into the game. So. There's a lot of memories from from that season. Uh, the, the 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 losses kind of stand out. The uh, certainly, like you mentioned, the UCLA game. People go back to that. But you know, UConn was a scoring machine in the NCAA tournament and putting up 90s and 100s. Even in that loss to to UCLA, they were prolific from the scoring. And Ray had a great game against UCLA, which kind of even put him more in the national spotlight than anything else. But this was certainly, uh, if you go back and watch the game, it was Brad Nessler and, and Dick Vitale calling the game, and they were ready for Ray Allen, and they, they certainly praised him throughout. But but uh, it was such a fun team to watch because you had two point guards with Daron Sheffer and, and Kevin Ollie who could push the ball up, but UConn never hesitated. They weren't walking the ball up the floor ever. They were always, whether the other team scored or didn't score, they had the capability of, of getting out on the break and, and scoring easy points. Just a really fun style of, of basketball, in my opinion, with the pressing and the offensive transition. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk more about the kind of their style and, and Kevin Ollie in particular. But before I give, before we get too far off of the subject, uh, was this the first time that UConn had been ranked number one in the country uh, this season? Was uh, had they ever been ranked number one before? Oh, that was yeah. That, when they when they went down there to play Georgetown, that was the first time they had been ranked in the rank, number one in the regular season. Yeah, that's why it was so monumental, and uh, it, it, just, it was just kind of weird for it to happen and in the way that they did on the road and everything, but, but, uh, we were all there with them and, and got their reactions. It was, it was a odd press conference to have at George Washington when UConn was going to play Georgetown, but it was, yeah, that was a really big deal. And the, and the women were ranked number one at the same time. So that was, that was the first time that the men and the women had been ranked number one at the same time. So it was, it was a big deal. It really threw, the whole university into that national spotlight. And, and like I said, you know, UConn had moved up as a, you know, made that big move, obviously during the dream season to a, more of a national program than they had ever been. But since they didn't get to the final four in 1990, it, it really was like building back up to that point. And they, you know, Danielle's team had lost to Florida, missed the final four in the year bef- before this. So, it kind of was like they were renewing their, in fact, that was the lead on my game story that if they were back after beating Duke, they were back in the, in the national spotlight again. And that just grew as they, as they won those first 15 games of the season. So let's talk about Kevin Ollie a bit then, because, you know, these days, most people obviously know him as UConn's former coach, you know, led UConn to a national championship in 2014. You know, and then obviously things, you know, didn't quite go as, as smoothly afterwards. Um, but he was a heck of a player and obviously enjoyed a really nice and long NBA career after he left UConn. Um, but in this game, you mentioned, you know, he had a, a terrific game, hit some key free throws down the stretch. What do you, you know, what was Kevin Ollie the player like? And I guess if you were watching at, you know, when you were watching at the time, did you, would have, would you have expected him to enjoy the, the success and the kind of the career path that he ended up having afterwards? Oh, I think, uh, you know, Kevin came here and felt he had a lot to prove. He had, he had watched Big East Monday night games. He was, you know, a kid from LA who who uh, was always interested in the Big East, like like Syracuse, like UConn, and and he had a special mentality. I think I think he always did. There was the toughness from his upbringing, and in the midst of the all the LA gang wars that went on, he was able to stay away from that because of basketball. And his his mother uh, gave him the attention and the direction that he needed to not fall into that gap. And he came here with that toughness 
he also came here with great skills. I mean, he the way he could push the ball up the floor. And you had the combination of him and Darone. I think Calhoun's best teams always had point guard play. But here you had two guys. You had Darone, who came after Nadav Hennefeld from Israel to to Connecticut. And, you know, and, and Nadav was a great defensive player, had great instincts. Darone had great instincts as well. But both Kevin and Darone together were able to push the ball up the floor, see the entire floor. I think that was that was the the really the greatest talents that they had were able to find guys up ahead of them and, and uh, make the long pass or make you know make a cross court pass to get somebody the ball in the right place and they had that innate ability to to make things happen offensively but they also were really good defensive players too and like I mentioned earlier the two two one press the Calhoun ran, you know, had that specific design, and and Darone and Kevin were those first two elements in that uh, press that would would you know pick people up at the backcourt, and then you know make it difficult for a team to get the ball over the midcourt line, and and together they they just worked seamlessly together to to do things offensively and defensively, but Kevin. That's what you're, you know, you're asking about Kevin, but his ability to get the ball up the floor, see people in the half, and also in the half court situation, and and so you're you're giving the ball off to a, a Ray Allen who, you don't have to give him much space, but if he gets the ball in space, and that's what Kevin and Darone were really good at doing, we're getting getting the ball to Ray, and and then, you know, and Donnie Donnie probably doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. He, he was kind of the other marshal at that point, and um, he had a great game as well, rebounding and and getting out. Donnie could run the break so well, too. Donnie was a tremendous athlete and played a lot of soccer and growing up in Federal Way, Washington. So these, these guys, and that was part of what made that recruiting class so special. After UConn had, had done so much in 1990, they were able to go to get Kevin in L.A. They were able to get... Donnie out of Federal Way, Washington. They got Brian Fair out of Arizona. Um, you know, and Darone out of Israel, obviously. Travis Knight out of Utah. That's that's when Jim and, and Howie Dickman and Dave Lato expanded their um, you know their recruiting perimeters. And, and of course, Dave Dave wasn't on the bench for this game. He had taken he had gone back to Northeastern where he played under Jim and had become head coach and. Um, but that was a, you know, we, I think we talked about that on the last podcast, the tremendous recruiting uh, ability of, of, of a Jim Calhoun, Howie Dickham, and Dave Lato combination. And that set the stage for what this team became and how they, you know, how they went to number one like that and then went to the Elite Eight. So I think when you look at all those elements, that's why this team was so special. But Kevin... Kevin was always one of my favorite players and uh, really just, uh, uh, you know, put his, put his head down and, and, and just was able to grind it out on every occasion, give UConn what they needed. In this case, he, he was scoring in addition to, I think, six assists with, with his 24 points, just a really solid game. And then hitting those free throws down the stretch, he, he, he may have emerged as a really great leader in this game because of the way he played. Oh, absolutely. So when um, so kind of to get into the game itself, there a couple of things struck me. Um, one is I think like like we said, UConn does lead this game for most of the way. Um, there are like a handful of points where Duke ties it up or they maybe they take the lead briefly, but it was basically a pretty much a wire to wire uh you know lead for UConn. And the other thing that struck me and you kind of touched on it is that this. They're, this team's ball movement is absolutely incredible. Like the way that they passed, the way that they like moved in transition, I, you just don't see it like that anymore. It was, it was honestly like, wow, like this is so much fun. Like now it kind of got me thinking, geez, I ought to watch like a few more of these games. Like, because, you know, and I think one of the reasons why is, uh, you know, this team is built like 
sort of like a modern basketball team in a way where, you know, not too many teams use two point guards and, you know, Ray Allen, you know, obviously now he's better known as a shooter. I guess he was a little bit more of an all around kind of score, kind of a three type of guy then. But, you know, Ray Allen is by all accounts, one of the best shooting guards of all time. So you've got like this crazy three guard lineup and you've got, you know, Travis Knight and Donnie Marshall are both terrific and pretty versatile players for their positions too. And what you see in the first like five or 10 minutes of this game is they're just pretty much just going that they're just doing whatever they want, you know, scoring in transition, you know, back, you know, behind the back passes, like they're threading every needle they can find. I mean, when you, when you rewatched it, was there, was that your impression too? Like, did it kind of, kind of bring back just kind of how smooth uh, they were? It, def- it definitely, it definitely jarred the memory and, and it is beautiful. I think it's a beautiful way to play ball and it was, it was fun to watch and, and they came out attacking, you know, that, that was, that was the main thing, and, and like I said, Duke was a little bit younger at that point. Steve Wojcikowski, um, Trajan Langdon was was a freshman, um, Ricky Price, and, and and they really only had Cherokee Parks inside to kind of uh, you know anchor what they were trying to do. It was a different time for Duke, and of course that the, the team got better as they went along that season, but, um, and, you know, and, and Cherokee Parks was good, but, uh, and he, he was skilled, but a, a lot of it was just lumped on him, and I, you know, he, like, like I mentioned, he had the, the, the foul and the technical that, that took him out of the game with 440 left, and that, that definitely changed the game, but, but Cherokee also, he scored a lot in the first half, but he didn't score... I think it was like 17 minutes left. He hit a three-pointer. He hit he hit three three-pointers in this game, and he had only made three-pointers in it three three-pointers. I think in his entire career prior to that, so he, he was able to score from the baseline. He was able to score out top of beyond the arc, but it it wasn't you know one of the most confident teams coming in. Certainly, Wojo ended up being a great point guard, but, you know, like, like we said, this was the second game of the year, and that that was what was so impressive to see UConn functioning at that high level, like you said, offensively and defensively in the second game of the year. I mean, that 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 is the kind of thing that usually happens later in the season, and they, they maintained it throughout the year, but, boy, they – for the second game of the year, they really played well, especially in the early minutes, which kind of put Duke back on their heels a little bit. And and they shot sixty percent in the first half. You don't, like I said, you don't you don't see a lot of games where Duke is giving up that kind of offense and and easy baskets. And that's that's what UConn was able to do with that lineup. Yeah, I mean, actually, now that you mention it, the, the offense that they were able to put on the board throughout the season was pretty crazy. The game before, so their first game of the year, they played Lafayette. They beat them 110 to 48, which is like, I mean, that's like that's like the type of like margin you normally expect from the women's program. Like, And then the next game, they did it again. They they beat Yale 105 to 53. Like, good God, like... That's, that's like, even, that's a lot. (laughs) It's a a pretty big, uh, you know, and so the fact that they were able to, I mean, Duke obviously was able to keep up, but, you know, it was pretty much showed you just how good a team on offense this was. And, you know, I think this Duke team was kind of interesting too, because they were pretty clearly a team in transition. You know, they, they lost to Arkansas in the championship game the year before you mentioned seven out of nine years in the final four, Um, you know, but like, they're big. They're like the most notable players on this roster were the younger guys who kind of made their names a little later on. But, you know, you can still tell like it's very clearly a talented team. And it showed that Duke was able to come back pretty much every time they risked pretty much getting blown out. Because, you know, there's a point early on where UConn leads uh, 14 to 7. UConn's made five straight shots. Ray Allen is kind of scoring at will, doing whatever he wants. Um, actually, it gets up to a nine point lead, actually. It was 16 to 7. And then, you know, Duke responds. They they tie it up uh, 21 uh, all a few minutes later. And um, obviously UConn resp- answered that with a big run of their own. So they led the rest of the half. But, you know, was it was it you think it was kind of a good I guess we'll say a good thing that UConn had this chance to play a team like Duke that maybe they're not like you know, a championship contender like they'd been the year before. But 
the very least, they're still very clearly a great team. And, you know, with Coach K just uh, able to kind of come up with an answer no matter what. Well, yeah, I mean, when I, I thought the grade eight was a was a great uh, setup, turn, you know, tournament. I mean, you, you look at the preseason NIT and Maui and even back then it was, you know, Alaska shootout was a big thing. But uh, it was a it was a great experience for them to go to Auburn Hills. That was it was a brand it was a pretty new building. I can't remember how old it was at that point, but it was a very impressive building at that time. Of course, you know, now it's gone. But I mean, uh, t- to be on that stage, uh, Florida and BC played earlier in the night, and then they played two more games the next night. Kind of li- of a little uh, miniature NCAA tournament to start off with. And so they they knew they were in the limelight. I remember talking to the to the guys when we got there, and Travis Knight had said that he and Donnie Marshall had been in the in the car driving around stores and just talking about how excited about the game that that, that was coming up against Duke, and and they they had a sense of pride, you know, as as the as the Huskies to to try to avenge those losses that they weren't a part of in in 90 and 91 but but they knew all about the rod sellers incident which really took a year to to come to national attention i mean it was they had the cbs cameras had that play where uh skirmish on the floor and and rod had uh, his you know he was on top of leitner's chest kind of and then pushed down on his head and everything and so the, the the you know the intro for this game on ESPN was about the the Christian Leitner shot in, in 1990 and the and the, the the just really grinded out physical game in, uh, in Pontiac I think it was uh, bef- before that uh, um, you know where the Lions played and the Silverdome and so those those were fresh memories then and even though. Donnie and Travis weren't involved in those games. They they wanted to make their mark and say, "Well, we can be Duke and we can move we can move back into the national spotlight this way." So the guys were very pumped up for the game. They got there. Uh, interesting thing I I had forgotten. I looked back at my clips and uh, Brian Fair and Rudy Johnson didn't travel with the team for that workout the day before. They they were held back in stores for academic reasons and uh, had to do some classwork and then they flew the day of the game and got there so they both played but they didn't have really big roles Rudy came in for like some defensive purposes and Brian was in there a little bit too but you know the, the, the team had a lot of weapons but and and Jim Calhoun said well he was asked was that a distraction to the team he said I don't really consider it a distraction he goes I'm not happy about it, but it, it wasn't a big distraction. But so that was an interesting part of it too. There always it seems like a UConn. There's always something going on off the court as well. But uh, it, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a big deal. But they you know they they made the the choice to leave them behind. But even guys like Eric Hayward came into that game uh, later and and. Gave Travis Knight a little bit of a, a breather, but Eric, you know, Eric wasn't the, the greatest, most skilled offensive player, but he was big and he, he could get in there. So, you know, we, we, we set the game up as UConn's perimeter, as, as you were saying, two great point guards and Ray on the wing. And, and uh, we set that up against uh, the Cherokee Park's Eric Meek situation. And, and Eric Meek really wasn't a factor in the game. Parks, Parks was the main scoring threat for, um, and and the experience for Duke. But um, you know they they were able to handle that. But it was it was definitely a a perimeter game against an inside kind of team, and and UConn was able to avoid that with some good play from Travis Knight. Also, you know that little spell that Eric Hayward came in there and gave him. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, so yeah, so I think I mentioned before they tied the Duke ties the score at twenty one all. Uh, and UConn ends up going on, I believe they get it up to a 17 to six run after that. Uh, they, they take a, they stretch their lead back to nine and then eventually to 11, 
you know, they pretty much take control. Uh, they're up 40 to 29 with uh, the under four timeout. Duke, you know, the Duke responds with a, a run to keep it kind of respectable. 42 to 36 was the score at halftime. And then in the to start the second half, Duke ties it up like pretty much right away. You know, so that I, I think that would make it what a 20, uh, 13 to two run. Yeah. So from like the, the under four timeout to like two minutes into the second half, they really made a push. Um, this Duke team, you know, Cherokee Parks was obviously kind of like their their big factor. Do you recall at the time, like, you know, kind of what you were thinking when Duke, uh, you know, we'll say when they made it close at halftime and then when they tied it up, was there any sense of like, oh, no, here comes Duke? Or did you actually feel at the time like, no, you know what, UConn will be fine. They'll, 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 they'll have an answer for this. Well, I, I just think the, you expected a closer game all the way. And the way UConn came out, we talked about how they attacked and how they um, you know, played very good defense at the beginning, got some turnovers. That I was kind of surprised that I don't have the full box, and I don't know what the final turnover totals was, but at halftime, they, both teams had had 11 turnovers. So it, it seemed like UConn was, was getting a lot of points off of turnovers. I don't think Duke converted the turnovers as, as well. and But UConn certainly shot well, and, and so then then, you know, it was Duke. You don't, you know, you don't expect Duke to to collapse and learn by lose by thirty points or anything. So that that burst at the start of the second half. I don't, I don't remember. I, I don't remember what I was sitting there thinking. It was a late game and we were we were pushing deadlines. <laughs> but uh, I I just know that you know you knew UConn wasn't going to run away from them. And you mentioned the the tie at twenty one in the game. Then was tied again at 42, so it, it had some symmetrical ability there that, that, that this kind of seemed right because you think you thought it would be a close game, and and then you you know UConn persevered, and, and then the game really changed when I go back to it again when when Parks found out of the game, but but you Duke again made it difficult down the stretch by you know compensating with Parks's loss and really focusing on their perimeter game and Wojciechowski, you know, doing the things that he did, hit a couple threes. They, they pressed at the end of the game and uh, on, on inbounds passes and UConn turned it over three times. And that, that allowed Duke to, to stay in it at the end. So I, I think the, my general impression there is that you, you went in expecting it to be a, a close game and, and it and it really was but but it always felt like you know you can kind of had control of the game because they played so well in the first half yeah absolutely you so let's talk about this uh parks technical then because it, it comes at an interesting point like you said so uh at this point um between we'll say the under 16 and almost to the under four timeout we've had kind of a back and forth type of deal where Duke will tie the game up, then UConn will go on a run, push their lead to about five, and then, you know, so on and so forth for a little while. Then uh, Donnie Marshall had a big part in this because, you know, every time, you know, there was a couple of sequences where he had a couple of key baskets to kind of push UConn back in front. And uh, I believe it was him who had the, uh, he drives and tries to absolutely throw a huge dunk down on Parks. Uh, he kind of gets, I mean, to be honest, he kind of gets stuffed by the rim, but Parks goes up and he tries to, you know, contest the the dunk. And it was kind of an interesting play. I don't really know if it was really a foul or, I don't know, it, it seemed like it could have gone either way. But after he gets called for the foul, he just absolutely loses his mind, like jumps up and just starts shouting and just has basically a little mini tantrum on the court. It was a little odd. Um, what do you, yeah, so like, it was obviously a huge, he's out of the game basically after that. So, you know, when I was rewatching it, I was like, what, like, what was he thinking? Like that was, it seemed, it didn't seem like that was necessary. Do was it ever like in the press conference afterwards, was there any explanation for kind of why he reacted that way? Well, um, I think it was, I don't know if it was the first year or the second year where that went in that the technical counted as a personal foul. And the, the big talk after the game was, Mike Krzyzewski said, don't, don't get caught up in the actual call of the foul itself. Because he, like you said, I'm not sure there was a foul there either. And, and if there was any foul, it was on Donnie's left side of his body, not 
certainly he didn't hit the arm. He, and it, and uh, if you look at the replays, you can say that it was a clean block, you know. And I don't know how much body he got because the, the camera angle doesn't really show you. But, you know, Krzyzewski said, don't worry so much about the call, you know, what what's really obvious was really awful is that uh, it can cost a team so much by that foul, you know, counting as a as a personal foul. In fact, the the rule is so new that uh, as you listen to the commentary, Dick Dick Vitale didn't even realize that Parks had fouled out until he was on the bench and that he threw up the graphic. He said that said Parks fouls out with twenty four points. And Dick goes, oh, he, you know, he found out, <laughs> and it was like um, I don't, I don't remember again my, in my mind what I was thinking if I if I realized it at that point or not. But uh, it took a little while for everything to come down for him to be on the bench. So yeah, I mean, you know, he he probably just he just thought that uh, he didn't foul him, so he he jumped up in the air and jumped back down. We had a great picture of it in the. In current and um it, it was just a, a spontaneous thing it happened really fast and i'm sure he wasn't thinking oh my god i better not lose my temper here because i'll fall out of the game i mean you, you don't go f you don't often go from three fouls to being fouled out <laughs> and uh that's what happened to him so it it, it was a it was just an emotional moment i think as i looked back on it if you're going to change that rule and you're going to make that a, a personal foul, then the referees have got to be a little bit more understanding with 440 left in the game and, and not. I mean, they they gave, they gave him that technical really quick. He it wasn't like he ran up to the official and protested. He didn't. Uh, from from what I could ever tell, he didn't say anything to the officials. He was just mad at himself for getting called for the foul, and he just he jumped up, jumped back down. Boom, technical foul. I, I think you've got to swallow your whistle a little bit there uh, and, and think about the circumstances. But it didn't happen. They gave him a technical and he was out of the game. So it was it was huge. I mean that and he was he was a guy, but like I said, he didn't score the last seventeen minutes of the game because UConn was able to find him and double down if they had to with uh, Travis and Donnie. Donnie did a good job defensively. I think Travis had a couple of block shots. It, it was a it was a very physical game, and, and in fact, the players mentioned that afterwards that uh, you know it was a, it was a it was a tough grinded out kind of game. So there was a lot of stuff going on inside. UConn and Duke both had some sloppy play in the lane where where you would kind of expect them to score easier points, but uh, that was just because of the physicality of the game. So um, it, it was one of those things and it certainly brought attention to that rule. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, in the moments after this happened, it was still, I believe about a four point game when that happened. And then U UConn would then stretch their lead back to about nine. I think, yeah, they lead 79 70 with about two thirty to play or so. And, you know, that yep. it kind of that was kind of it after that. I mean, you know, obviously, like, you know, that foul call and, you know, if Parks is in the game, you know, who knows how things play out. But, you know, a nine point game, a nine point lead with two and a half minutes left is, uh, you know, that's kind of a tough ask to come back from that. And, you know, Duke, they gave it a good run. You know, they, they cut the deficit to like six and the four. But like, you know, it was just a little bit too much. And, you know, UConn was able to make, you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about being able to make winning plays down the stretch. And, you know, UConn made, they did what they had to do. They made their free throws. They, you know, hit their shots. They played their defense and they, uh, you know, pull out the 90 to 86 win. I was struck by how long the last two minutes took the to play, though. It was like 20 <laughs> minutes of real time. <laughs> it was, a little... it was unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, it just really... It took forever, and that, and for me, that as a deadline writer, that was like, come on, in, in this thing, you know. But but that's, you know, Mike Shevsky, Dean Smith, those guys in the ACC, they had the ability. Of course, Dean had the four corners. But this wasn't a four corner situation, but I mean, those kind of coaches, they know how to use their timeouts. They know how to change the game. Like I said, just put pressure on the inbounds. UConn threw it away, you know, you, you talk about how well UConn played in this game, but they they really almost 
let it slip away. Kevin Ollie said after the game the ball was slippery. I, I, I don't know what that meant, but uh, they he he bobbled one. Derone got trapped in a corner and and had a turnover. And then I think they had a longer pass that they threw away as well. So they were giving them a chance, and then uh, I, I hadn't really remembered, but uh, Blakeney Kenny Blakeney for for Duke went to the line two consecutive times. He missed two free throws at, at uh, the first time he went to the line. That could have been huge. I mean, that really could have changed the game. Duke didn't hit their free throws, and UConn did. So I think, again, that, that showed a little bit of the experience factor, and especially with Kevin at the line. I, I, like I said, he really stepped up at the end, and, and uh, you know, Chesky must have thought that it was a good I, idea to put him at the line, but Kevin... Kevin came up big, and, and, and that was really the deciding factor in the game after after all those other things we just talked about that UConn did well. It really came down to a free-throw shooting contest at the end. So uh, Kevin Kevin iced it away and uh, and probably didn't get as much credit. We, we named Ray Allen the name of the player of the game. ESPN named him player of the game. But, boy, Kevin, Kevin had a fantastic game. Donnie Marshall had a really good game. And... Um, that's that's what it takes to win a, a a spotlight game like that, especially early in the season. Yeah, no, you know it's funny when uh, Kevin Ollie was hitting those free throws. It did kind of make me think, like, geez, like here we have you know this kid, you know, you know, however old he was, twenty two year old senior, knocking down these big free throws to beat Duke in a in a big game, and then you have like what is it? I guess like twenty, yeah, something twenty something years later, pretty, you know, he's the head coach and his players were all you know, ice in their veins at the free free throw line too. You know, like the 2014 UConn team, they, they hardly ever miss free throws. So I can't, I have to imagine like, you know, seeing this and then, you know, watching him as a coach is like, yeah, they, they, if nothing else, Kevin Ollie must have been a, really good at getting these kids to take their free throws in practice. Cause you see, you know, both of those teams, they, they could get it done and when it counted and uh, win their, win their games at the line. So I don't know. That no, that's, was, why, that's why Jim Calhoun put, always put so much trust in Kevin because he, he thought like, and Jim liked to have that point guard who thinks like a coach on the floor, and Derone did that as well. But but Kevin was was really good at it, and and uh, just had that instinct. Then that takes me to another point that's kind of away from what you were talking about. But if you if you watch this game, and I was just sitting there marveling at the 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 players and the bench coaches uh, of these two teams that went on to. I mean, Krzyzewski had Tommy Amaker and Mike Bray on his bench. <laughs> and, and they both go on to become head coaches. UConn had Howie, who went on at Central Connecticut. Tom Moore was, I think, in his, his first year. And Carl Hobbs, they all went on to be head coaches. Then you've got the players with Kevin becoming a, a coach. And again, as a point guard, translating that into becoming a head coach, Wojciechowski obviously is at Marquette now and, and is, is kind of a hot name, although everything's cooled off with, with the pandemic. But, I mean, Marquette, Wojciechowski, he, he's, he's turned that program back around. You had Jeff Capel, who was in this game as, as, a, as a young guy who's at Pittsburgh now after coaching at VCU and uh, Old Dominion. <laughs> That's a lot of guys that – ended up being head coaches in addition to Jim Calhoun and Mike Krzyzewski. So what an amazing amount of, uh, I, I don't know what you want to say, just the, the mentality of basketball, the instincts of basketball, a lot of smart guys, and, and of course most of them are guards, not big men. <laughs> so you know, Cherokee Parks didn't go on to become a head coach somewhere. So uh, you, and then, and then you're talking about, Ray Allen and all that on the on the other side. So this was like a, a, a celebrity game in, in many ways with guys that really understand the game, and, and and that's probably why it became such a good game because just a lot of smart play out there. Absolutely. Uh, so UConn gets the win, ninety to eighty six. Um, was there anything in particular that stood out to you upon the rewatch? Um, I think that was one one of the things. Is, because uh, just so many guys have gone on to do to do bigger things. Uh, also, the very beginning of the game, the way you kind of, you kind of came out and attacked. I mentioned that before. 
just really good with the press, and 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 they and they broke that up. The two two one was was always the signature thing that Jim played, but the and Vital pointed this out when they switched to a one two one one, and that just gives the other team a different look. And then they, there was some zone mixed in there as well. I mean, Jim Jim was just really good at that uh, changing the pace, forcing their team to completely rethink about the way they were going to attack the, the basket. And and he did a lot of it in that game. He, he did a great job of coaching, and, and uh, the guys executed it well. And like I said, for the for the second game of the season, the the uh, level of execution was, was really, really good by UConn. No, absolutely. So uh, for stats, um, I, I was not able to get my hands on a box score, so kind of limited, but... Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Ray Allen was the leading scorer with uh, 26 points. Kevin Ollie had 24. Cherokee Parks, I think he, he finished with 24 points as well, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Any? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the... I, wish, I just wish I had a full box so I could see the final turnovers and points off turnovers. But uh, that was that was key early. But um, yeah, the, those were the uh, those were the leading scores, and uh, Capel had 13. 13, yeah, 13, and, uh, and and Price had 15 off the bench. He was kind of a – he was kind of the guy that uh, was scoring in, in those runs you talked about early in the second half and everything that, that uh, kind of kept Duke in the game. But, you know, you had, you had uh, Ray with 26, Kevin with 24, and, and then Donnie Marshall. What do I, I'm trying to think what Donnie had. I think uh, – Let's see, Donnie Marshall had uh, 12 points, but he also had, I think, six rebounds. So, you know, they, it was it was the Ray and Kevin show for the most part, but Donnie played a really strong game as well. Yeah. Darone, Darone was just always there when you needed Darone. You know, he could hit a shot, but he could also make that bounce pass to get somebody in the lane. And, and you know, really that whole starting lineup for UConn played exceedingly well yeah uh Sheffer, I, I distinctly recall had one awesome pass in transition where he uh gets a steal and he just fires a cross-court pass over to kevin ollie in, in full stride and then he just goes up and uh, you know finishes the play and i was like yeah that's that's uh jim calhoun like basketball right there he, he, well, you know, he loves Ray that Allen. i mean you you talked i think we talked about this when we when we did your uh your podcast for the the ray allen uh, in the in the big east tournament against georgetown that was you know, it was all, all the attention was was on that off balance shot that he hit. But Ray could pass, and he he threw a, a wonderful pass over the defense in this game against Duke. And he also a lot of the time, even though he had two point guards, if Ray got the rebound and he could see that he could get the the fast break going, he'd bring the ball up too. You know, he could handle the ball, and and uh, I think that that was another thing that jumped out at me that. UConn just had so many options, and Donnie, you know, Donnie could even bring the ball up if he had to. So that's why they were able to score in transition and score the, the amount of points that they did. You were talking about all those hundred point games, and 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 I, and I mentioned how you know the, they they scored in the nineties and hundreds the whole time, and they they scored a, a ton of points against UCLA and still lost. Of course, UCLA went on to win the national championship, and the game was played in Oakland, so. <laughs> you can't really say that that was a bad loss in the tournament, although they certainly had a good chance to beat UCLA there. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that sounds like a subject for a different day, though, for sure. Um, <laughs> so the broadcast, um, you get a shout out on the broadcast. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, at one point, Leslie Visser kind of just does a little segment on the horde. And what do you know? We see young Ken Davis right there. And at one point I was like, hey, I think that's Ken Davis. And literally Dickie V just goes, hey, that's my boy, Ken Davis. He's from the Hartford Current. Does a great job. I cracked me up. I've I, I forgotten that. Dick gave me a few shout outs over the years and I, I was watching this thing and I, 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 if I had remembered it, I would have gone to it first, <laughs> but I said to my wife, I said, Hey, look how young I look, you know? And, uh, so yeah, it, uh, it happened from time to time. And I was a good friend with Leslie and, uh, and I had, I'd forgotten she was still with the ESPN crew at that time, but yeah, she, uh, decided to take a place right there. And I was there and Tommy Ants, my, uh, 
my co-beat writer at that at that point we had uh, we had shifted things when when UConn became big in 1990 the um, the staff was huge and uh, Tom became my uh, I, I certainly don't want to call him my backup because Tom worked his butt off on the UConn beat and together uh, you know he gave it gave me a little break on some days when Tom could go to practice or whatever. I mean, we we had a game. Tom did a game story that night from the Boston College Florida game, and and uh, did a notebook on Donnie Marshall, and I did the stat wrap up. And it, like I said, since it was the second game that night, it, it was a, a late game for us, and we just kept grinding it out to, through all of our additions that we did, but. Yeah, that that was fun. I just kind of I kind of fell upon that, and I was watching. I didn't I didn't remember that at all. And there were some, there. I mean, Dick Dick's a great guy. I uh, always had a lot of respect for Dick, and I know a lot of people get annoyed at the way he calls the game, but he was a little bit more mild mannered at that time, I think, than, than he is now. But uh, Dick Dick was Dick is one of those broadcasters who comes into the media room before the game a lot of a lot of the tv guys just don't acknowledge the writers at all but dick always was in there mingling and he and he knew who was there as a national writer i mean they, i saw faces in that on that press row that night that uh, were some of my best friends from 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 march postseason times that uh, th- this was a big event i think i think it was the first grade eight that was ever held and, and it, you know it lasted for a few years but um you know the next night uh I, th- I think it was purdue against missouri and and another game and the boston college florida game was we, we had a separate game story on on that in the hartford current so um it was a different time media wise especially now with the dwindling numbers and uh you know watching baseball games last night i watched the cubs against the royals in, in Kansas City, and, and uh, here was uh, Joe Davis, the announcer, in L.A., and uh, A.J. Brzezinski was in, uh, somewhere in Florida, I think, and they were calling the game from Kansas City because of the COVID. Uh, you know, nobody's in the in the press box. So it's just a very bizarre time right now. And looking back at that, it was probably the, you can kind of say, a time of excess with uh and, and leslie was talking about the horde and which i i never i never took a lot of pride as a writer you don't want to be the story but uh it certainly was a unique situation at that time at that time with so many papers yeah she... from connecticut traveling to auburn hills or traveling to alaska or traveling to hawaii or california wherever yukon went everybody went you know and then some, some papers sent you know, one or two, maybe sometimes we sent, a lot of times we sent three or even four because Alan Greenberg and Owen Canfield were the, were the columnists. And, and a lot of times we had four people or five people at a, at games. So, um, it was, it was a, a little bit different time now when guys are going by themselves or some papers aren't even going on the road anymore because they can't afford it. Yeah. She, uh, Leslie Visser called you guys the largest, uh, college press contingent in the country. So, yeah, you know. Well, that... it was always a challenge for a sports information director or a tournament director to have to have Duke against UConn somewhere or or UConn against North Carolina because those those were the only t- the other teams that had big media contingents that uh, you know a lot of a lot of the Carolina papers would uh, be covering both Duke and North Carolina. Sometimes they would you know they'd be on Wake Forest or NC State as well. Well, so, if yeah, if uh, you had. Would... Had Ray Allen go to Wake Forest with Tim Duncan, then I'm sure you'd have seen plenty of that too. Yep, yep. So um, we need to start to wrap this up, but uh, just uh, two more quick uh, thoughts from you. Um, so, you know, Ray Allen and Kevin Ollie were sort of the, the top scorers. Would you uh, give this game to either one of them as the uh, the top dog or, or somebody else? In that one game? Yeah, yeah, in the in this game against Duke. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, we... we, we uh... We had a graphic, and we chose Ray as the player of the game, and the and ESPN did as well. Uh, uh, but I I think when it comes right down to it, I mean, ESPN made that decision before Kevin went to the free throw line, and I think Kevin had a had a huge role in, in icing that game away, and also the way he pushed the ball earlier in the day. I mean, it was it would be close, but you know, Ray Ray came in as the star, and I mean, he was. 
He was what everybody was talking about. He was in our in our special section before that season. We had the I did a big feature on Ray and uh, what you know what his potential was, and it was the headline was the Candy Man because that was his. Well, the, actually, the headline said the Candy Man can uh, from the Sammy Davis Jr. song, uh, which is probably way too old for a lot of people to remember now. But uh, but Ray, you know, had that special presence coming into the the season and um and it was a great time around yukon with the with the women's program emerging and and rebecca lobo was there and and um ray was on the men's team it, it, it you're talking about two of the biggest personalities in the history of of yukon athletics so um yeah i I'd, I'd go with with ray i mean he he did a lot of good things but boy you can't overlook what the impact of Darone and, and Kevin in that backcourt. Nice, nice. So, um, all right, well, before we get going, I uh, just want to cover one more quick thing as well. So since we started recording this podcast, uh, news has broken that Jordan Hawkins, a top 40 uh, prospect, has committed to UConn. Uh, so that would put UConn uh, for the 2021 class uh, into the top 10 nationally. Uh, Jordan Hawkins was uh, rumored to be a, a interested in going to Xavier. So that's another guy that uh, Dan Hurley has kind of poached from, an, you know, a, one of the new conference rivals' backyard. Um, so, Ken, I mean, you know, we're seeing UConn's recruiting take a real uh, – I get a real boost from the Big East. So what, what do you think about just, uh, I guess, what Danny Hurley's been able to do, I guess now, you know, putting together a pretty uh, solid recruiting class. Uh, going I didn't into know the... that, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, he's doing an incredible job. He, you know, he goes into Philadelphia and uh, takes a play, player from Villanova, which is, it, it feels like the old days when uh, Rolly used to take guys away from, you know, from Connecticut. And, uh, Rolly Massimino would, would uh, throw that back in the, face at UConn, but then, then Jim came in and, and turned things around. There's no doubt that the Dan is able to sell the Big East, and it's just, it's it's unfortunate that uh, we just don't know where things are headed. I mean, I, I'm working on my Blue Ribbon preview for uh, UConn for the upcoming season, and and my editor, Chris Dorch, has been like, going back and forth, you know, whether we're going to do the book or <laughs> I've written for, for Chris for many years and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and bat this out. I mean, you got uh, Danny talked about it the other day. We had a, a Zoom call with the Connecticut media with Danny on Monday and he talked about how book night is going to have the spotlight on him and everybody's going to be, you know, he, he had such a great finish to the season last year so. Danny's not only developing talent, but he's going out and getting some bigger bodies. He's getting some, uh, as you said, as you said, I mean, this this recruiting class now is starting to really shape up. He's doing a great job, and I, I quite honestly, I don't even know how he's doing the recruiting in in this situation where you you can't uh, you can't really be with players. They can't come to campus. Uh, it, it's it's pretty amazing, but there's no doubt about it. Every everything that we have said. Everything that Danny has said about the Big East value to UConn is coming true because there's no doubt that his little bit of success, and especially the momentum they were building towards the Big East tournament, I'm sorry, towards the American uh, tournament last March, I, I we will always wonder what they would have done if maybe they could have won that American uh, conference tournament and and gotten a bid to the NCAA. There's no doubt now they're in that they're in that factor. I mean, most people are still doing their bracketology and saying that UConn could be like a ten seed. I think they might they might even be able to be higher than that if Book Knight plays the way he he can play and if uh, a cook a cook can come back uh, you know and be healthy and be the kind of strong player that he was developing into I, I think UConn has a has a good season ahead of them whatever that might be and you know certainly we can't predict any of those things because you know this week UConn canceled football season so we don't know what's ahead um, I'm sure the Big East is, is known for some creative approaches I'm, I'm thinking that more likely they you know they they skip the non-conference season and then maybe maybe we just start 
with the Big East, which it's, you know, it's just unfortunate. We don't know where any of this is going to stand. And it's going to be hard for the kids. I know they, they've been back for a few weeks now. And Danny was talking about them checking in in the morning, going through the questionnaire, going through the, the testing to, to see if have, if they have COVID, you know, and, and, and following the arrows through the uh, practice facility and things that we don't, we don't see right now. And wearing masks. Uh, he, he talked about wearing gloves and, oh boy, I tell you, th- this world is, is, is crazy right now. Um, I'd like I'd like to see what he could do with a full season, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think they're going to be able to play in November, and uh, certainly we have different models to watch right now. The NBA is proving that the bubble can be kind of successful, but, you know, you can't do that. Pretty soon, I guess, you know, you students are going to be coming back to UConn, and, and the kids are not going to be in a bubble, and they're going to be exposed to things, and and uh, like I said, no football season. It's just going to be a weird year in college sports. So who knows what to expect. But I think if you can get back on the floor, I think they're headed back to the NCAA tournament finally. And, and then uh, with this recruiting class, like you just said, pretty bright future right now for, for UConn back in the Big East. Absolutely. Well, whenever UConn does play next, uh, we have a lot to look forward to. Uh, Ken, thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming back on. And uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, we got to wrap this up real quick. So I'll just say you follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. DMs are open. Email is yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. And um, yeah, just uh, we'll be back next Tuesday and uh, we'll catch you guys all later.